Hey, welcome to the Kingdom Church Podcast. We're so glad you could join us. You're listening to a brand new message. So whatever you're doing, wherever you are, sit back, relax. Here it is. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 18, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate it. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, but God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded a sign and Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Come on, someone. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The Lord um, has just put this idea, um, we've kind of been here for a few weeks, just this idea of truth and and what that looks like. And we've been talking about that for the last number of weeks. And um, we're not quite done with that yet. Uh, This week is not going to be like the last two weeks, but there's going to be some similarities. And what I want to do this morning is I want to really just dig past the exterior and I want to get into the interior of the message of Jesus. And so I'm going to call our message this morning, Build Your Interior build your interior. Can you guys put your hands together for the Lord and for the worship team? You guys can be seated. Thank you so much. So glad you could be here. Uh, Every person in the building, every single person watching online, hey, we love you. So glad you could be here. Uh, My name's Harrison, if you don't know, and I'm the pastor here. And um, I just want to start this morning uh, with an illustration. Can I start with an illustration? Okay. Um, You guys can see this. Uh, these two drinks in front of us. Now, uh, if you really love energy drinks, um, you may be offended. And so I'm letting you know in advance, uh, all your complaints, send them to my assistant. Uh, So uh, this right here is a bottle of water. This right here is an energy drink. We all can see it. Every single person online, hope you can see it as well. Now, generally, I'm assuming you guys kind of know the contents of what is in here. Um, But what I want you to do is I want you to suspend that for a moment. And I want you to pretend that you did not know what was in either of these. Like all you can see is the exterior. All you can see is the outside. Does that make sense? Like you have no clue what is inside of it. You have no clue the contents. You have no clue what it's going to do to you. You have no clue whether it's good, bad, or otherwise. All you can see is the outside. Does that make sense? Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, based simply on the exterior of these two drinks, what would you say that most people would probably choose? Like, we got this plain water bottle. You guys can see the water bottle? Plain as day. And then we have this beautiful pink (laughs) drink with butterflies and all that good stuff. Um, As you guys said, I would wager to guess that simply based on the exterior, most people would probably choose to drink this one if they didn't know what was inside of it. Do you guys agree with that? Simply because the exterior is appealing. It kind of, it it just makes me feel something like, yeah, I'm going to choose that one. Now, come back to reality for a moment. And again, this is where you may be offended. We do know what is inside of these drinks. And uh, in case you do not know this, energy drinks are terrible for you. They're loaded uh, with caffeine. They're loaded with sugar. Uh, like, and you're like, to understand, like, there's other unhealthy drinks I could have chosen, uh, but energy drinks have the nicest cans. So <laughs> I needed it for my illustration. Um, but these things are like full of caffeine, full of sugar. There's studies, like literally what energy drinks do for you. They can increase heart palpitations, uh, increase your blood pressure, increase heart rate. Teens that drink uh, energy drinks excessively uh, can actually, they're known to have sleep problems, increase in depression. Uh, these things, is death in a can. <laughs> but it looks really good. 
uh, on the outside. Now, water, on the other hand, uh, and I, I, could, I could preach a whole sermon on the benefits of water, uh, but water and science and everything, and you guys probably know this, is the most life-giving liquid on the entire planet. Right? We are made literally out of water. 70% of our, our bodies are water. Water helps us to, to sleep better. It helps your skin. It helps your mood. It can help your diet. It can help your digestion. Literally, water does so many things. Now, I'm not a doctor, so take this one with a grain of salt, um, but when I get sick, I only drink water. Like, I've done it for the last like seven years. I don't even, I just drink water. And guess what? I get better every single time. So like I said, take it for what it is. You can cancel all your medication if you want, but that's, that's just me. Um, I'm not a doctor. But I think that water is just, it's life-giving, right? And so if you were to, again, you had no clue you had no clue of any of these things. All you would have to do is make a decision based on the exterior. I think human nature is to draw and go towards the thing that looks better on the outside. The thing that just, just appeals to our senses. Now, what I want to do, and kind of what I'm trying to tell us with this illustration, is that oftentimes the things that look best on the surface are actually the worst for us. This is where I'm trying to go. The things that look best on the surface are actually the things that are worse for us. Now, you guys are saying, well, I, I know energy drinks, so on and so forth. But I actually have this belief that when it comes to our worldviews, when it comes to how many of us view the world, how many of us view culture, society, how we decide our morality, how we decide what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, a lot of times we simply judge things based on the exterior what sounds good, what appeals to our senses. Now, the irony is that growing up, one thing that you tell kids, one thing that we learn all the time is, hey, don't judge a book by its cover. You have to go deeper. But what I would argue is in the culture and the time and the climate that we are living in, for a lot of us, we view things strictly on a surface level, and we decide whether it is good or bad, whether it is right or whether it is wrong. And I would argue that a lot of times in life, in culture, in how we view ourselves, how we view morality, whatever it may be, a lot of times we base things on how they look on the exterior without actually examining what's inside of it. Now, I just happen to believe that when it comes to Jesus and specifically the message of Jesus, everything that he has for us, everything that he wants for us, everything that he encourages us to do is that which is best for us. Everything that Jesus has for us is life-giving. Everything that he has done for us will bring us life and life abundant. But here's the thing you need to understand about Christianity. The outer package of the message of Jesus isn't always appealing. Oftentimes, the message of Jesus is kind of like this water bottle. It's kind of bland on the outside. It doesn't appeal to our senses. But the truth is what is in it is life-giving. But too many of us make our decisions based on the exterior. I'll give you guys an example. One of the things that Jesus calls us to do that is a life-giving practice that I can guarantee you will help you and change your life is that Jesus calls us to give. There's a practice that Christians have been practicing for, for, for thousands of years, literally the practice of tithing, to give away 10% of your income. On the surface, that doesn't sound that fun, right? Talk to your financial advisor. All right, first, I want to give away 10%. He'll say, what? <laughs> Invest it. Like, you can do so many different things, but Jesus says give it. The exterior doesn't look that good, but when we get a little bit deeper, what we understand is that giving is one of the most life-giving practices that we as humans can do, but the package won't be appealing. And there's one thing that we need to understand, and Jesus and Paul are going to confirm it here today is that sometimes the outer package of Christianity doesn't make sense. It's not appealing, but it's actually intentional. He's not trying to appeal to the exterior. He's trying us to, get to, trying us to understand the interior, the deeper message. And so that's what I want to do today. I want us to understand the deeper message. Because on the exterior, things won't always make sense. Paul puts it like this. We just read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. He's literally saying the message of Jesus on the surface, 
the cross, his crucifixion, his death, it doesn't make sense. It's foolish. To choose death is like this when there's this beautiful, shiny object in front of me. But beneath the surface, he continues, he says, it's foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. So listen, here's what I want to do this morning. What I want to do, and it's going to come all from the text, I want us to examine what are some things that we far too easily accept because of their exterior appearance that don't actually give us life. And what are some of the things that Jesus calls us to do that don't look great on the outside but will actually change you literally from the inside out? And so what I want to do today is I want us to get to the depth of Christianity because I just have this belief that the depth of Christianity, the depth of the message of Jesus is always better than the surface stuff that culture gives us. And far too many times we drink it up because it looks good on the outside. So we're going to study this passage. Um, That's kind of where we're going. Does that make sense? What we're going to do. So uh, just a little context. First Corinthians, if you're new to the Bible, uh, is a book found in the New Testament. New Testament just is after the time of Jesus. Um, And Paul is the guy that wrote this, and he's writing to a church in Corinth, hence the name Corinthians. So he says again, it's the power of God. Continuing verse 19, he says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? One thing I want us to understand, and I think this passage is going to bring some light to it. Have you guys ever felt like to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus in this day and age is kind of hard? You guys ever felt that? To like truly follow Jesus, to truly be faithful to orthodox, it's kind of hard. You, you want to know why? This passage explains it. Because the essence of what he is saying, he's saying God's way and God's wisdom will not always match up with the world's way and the world's wisdom. If you want to take notes, you can write it like this. God's wisdom will often contradict the world's wisdom. God's wisdom will often contradict the world's wisdom. I'm just kind of tripping out. Are we recording? Did did Mark click record? He did, like on the soundboard? I'm more tripping because he's not back there. Andrea, get your husband. Um, (laughs) We're good? Good. Didn't want to give the devil a foothold today because I got some some preaching to do. Online needs to hear this as well. God's wisdom will often contradict the world's wisdom. The wisdom and the message of Jesus will not always fly with culture and our society. We need to understand this. And here is why it is hard and can be hard to be a follower of Jesus. Because each and every one of us, we are a part of society. We are a part of culture. Culture is inbred. Culture is what we live. We don't have to do anything to be a part of culture other than exist. And so a lot of times the messaging that you and I will get consciously and or subconsciously from the world and the people around us, it will not jive with the message of Jesus. And one thing the world is doing and has done for 2,000 years, but it's better than ever, they're marketing experts. And what marketing experts do really well is they don't worry about the interior, they just want you to focus on the exterior. Do you want to know how we got a whole country to start smoking? It was to tell nothing about what cigarettes will do for you, but only show you how cool it is to do it. And so today, that's the way that so many of us live. We have this idea that, well, if something seems natural, if something sounds natural, it must be normal. Paul is arguing the opposite. Paul is saying just because something seems natural, you could say just because some, something seems wise, it doesn't mean it actually is. And so the way of Jesus and his wisdom, Paul is saying, is so much greater than the world's wisdom. And so what this means, and if, if you want to understand it for us, what this means for us is that oftentimes my first reaction or my natural instinct in many cases is actually wrong. Right? Follow your instincts, not really. 
because a lot of times my instincts are wrong and a lot of times my wisdom will actually contradict God's wisdom, but his wisdom is so much better than my wisdom. His way is better. But the hard part of that is it will contradict our common sense in many times. I'll give you guys an example. Um, for those of you guys that don't know, I was born and raised uh, in Alberta. I'm a good Alberta boy. So I love beef, beer, country music. I don't like any of those things. Uh, I do like beef, actually. But, um, but I, I've been in Alberta my whole entire life. Uh, my wife, when we first met, she's from B.C., and so one of the biggest differences between the beautiful land of Alberta and the dump known as BC, um, <laughs> one of the biggest differences uh, is the landscape and like the topography. If you guys don't know, um, Alberta is as straight as they come. Our roads are very, very straight. Some of you guys are like, wait, the hand is a circle. It's pretty circular. <laughs> Still, it's very straight. So for me, um, I grew up on, on straight roads. And one of the biggest differences you'll find when you go to BC is the driving is vastly different because there's turns and curves and all these things. Now, Christy is from a little-known town um, in BC called Ashcroft. You guys heard of Ashcroft? A few people. Um, and I never heard of it either, so. But I went there, and I've been there many times. But right outside of Ashcroft, because um, Ashcroft is kind of at, like, the bottom of a, a valley, and there's like a hill or a mountain that the road wraps around in order to get you to the valley. And so it's kind of like it's just this really windy road, and it's right on the side of a cliff. So if like you drive off the cliff, you dead. And the very first time I drove on it, because again, I'm used to like straight roads for days. Like you can sleep for 20 minutes if you want to, just have someone grab the bottom of the wheel. So when I went there the very first time, like I was pretty scared going around these things. And so one of the things that I did is that I just kind of followed conventional wisdom. And so every single time that I would go by a corner or around a corner, um, I'd hit the brake. Because you've got to slow down, right? That's, like, that's just what you learn. If you want to be safe, you've got to slow down. And so one thing that Christy told me really early on and taught me, and uh, I think in her family, she's in the back now, uh, they call it uh, the zoom-zoom method. Uh, <laughs> they said when you go around those corners, uh, the best thing to do is not to hit the brake when you get to the part of the curve. What you're supposed to do is when you get to the most curved part, you actually hit the gas a little bit, and you speed up. And so when she told me that, I said, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> I will not speed up around this curve. Now, for any person that is like, is that actually true? I actually looked it up this week, and that's actually what they tell you to do. Um, is to speed up around the, sh like the part, like, not like crazy, like not like gun it, but you, you hit the gas, right? You actually have, more, and so I did it for the very first time, and I actually had more control when I ran around the corner. And it completely blew my mind, because I had this idea that slow was always safest. But this is where I'm trying to go. Sometimes conventional wisdom, just because it sounds good, it doesn't mean it's actually true. And this is what we're going to find when we try to follow Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus will contrast and clash many times with our own common sense and with what culture, society, and everyone else around us tells us is best. And so what I want to show you, a couple things this morning of what that looks like practically speaking and how we can begin to understand why the depths and the interior of the message of Jesus is what we actually need. And sometimes when we feel like it's time to slow down, it's actually better to speed up. So 1 Corinthians 1, continuing verse 21, he says, For since in the wisdom of God, though in wisdom it did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. That's really important. God understands a lot of the stuff that he calls us to do and that he does is foolish to us. But it actually pleases him. He likes it. Like, I like that I can throw off those tiny humans who think they know it all. He says, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Verse 22, Jews demanded a sign. Greek looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a foolishness to the Gentiles. Now, what I'm going to show you is that even today, the message of Jesus is the same stumbling block. 
And it is foolish to the Jews, and I'll show you why that's so relevant to us. Or sorry, it was a stumbling block to the Jews, which I'll show you why it's relevant for us today, and foolish to the Gentiles, still relevant to us today. Both of them, Paul is saying, struggled with the message of Jesus because on the exterior, it didn't look like what they thought it should look like. So let's start with the Jews. Why was the message of Jesus a stumbling block for the Jews? What we need to understand um, is that in, in the Bible, like the Jewish people that we call today, uh, the Bible refers to them in the Old Testament as the nation of Israel. So the, the nation of Israel is, is modern-day Judaism and Jews. And so the nation of Israel, if you read the Old Testament, these are God's people. This is God's chosen nation. And what happens is that God makes a promise very early on to the nation of Israel. And he makes a promise. He says, one day through this nation, I am going to bless the entire world. The whole world will be blessed through you. I am going to make a way where there is no way. I'm going to bring dry bones back to light. All of these things. And so the Jewish people began to look forward to this day when there would be this coming Savior. The words that they used were the Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah or the Christ. And what the Messiah was literally was the anointed one. So they were looking for this anointed one. And their, in their minds, the anointed one, born out of Israel, what he was going to do, he was going to release the Jews from captivity. He was going to set the captives free, cause the lame to walk again, cause the blind to see. He was going to free Israel once and for all. And most importantly, he was going to reign as king. That's what Israel was expecting. Now, you need to understand something. Everything that I just said, Jesus checks off every single one of those boxes. But the issue is this. Jesus didn't do it the way they thought he was going to do it. And so when he came to earth, he didn't really make sense. Because Israel was looking for a Messiah that was going to be a warrior king. Jesus didn't come as a warrior king. He came as a servant. And so what happens for kings when they come into town, they mean business. And so they ride in on a horse. And a horse means they're here for war. But when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he didn't come on a horse. He came on a donkey. And a donkey is a symbol of peace. And so in their mind, there was no way a king was going to come on a donkey. That just doesn't look that good. I'm expecting this. I'm expecting a horse. I'm expecting a sword. Jesus was the opposite because Jesus came in power, but his power was so much different than the power that they had come to know. And he sums up his mission kind of simply in Matthew chapter 20. He says, man, whoever wants to be first, anyone wants to be great, they must first become a slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This didn't make any sense. What kind, of a, what kind of a king is this? This guy isn't the Messiah. This guy isn't the Christ. He's just some fraud. There's no power in service. There's no dignity in death. And if, if you know how the story goes, it was actually the Jewish people that led the crucifixion of Jesus. And the reason they crucified him, the reason they killed him is because the outer package did not look like how they expected it to look. And really what they did, even as an outward display of disrespect, the Roman soldiers, when, when he died, they put above his cross, king of the Jews. Because there was this idea and this mockery, some king. What kind of a king ends up on a cross? Now what's funny is that conventional wisdom says the story ended on Friday night. But come on, somebody, the story didn't end on Friday night. Because on Sunday morning... Jesus showed them what power looked like when he came out of the grave victorious, when he defeated death and sin once and for all. And so the movement that they thought they killed because they killed Jesus in weakness, Jesus rose to life in power. He rose to life victorious and thus began the movement, which would be the greatest movement, not just in that generation, but in the history of the world, the movement and the way of Jesus. And Jesus rose again victorious, and he came to reign now as king. And he has his followers. But once again, the followers don't change. They didn't pull up swords. They didn't pull up chariots. Instead, they threw towels over their shoulders and began to serve. The movement and the people of Jesus 
I need us to understand this. They refused to give into the culture around them. And they refused to buy what their picture of power was. And instead, they looked at the foolishness of Christ. Power poured out. And they said, wow, it is actually in service that the world has changed. It's actually in love, in devotion, in not taking life but laying my life down. And so the early church literally sold their possessions. They gave to the poor. They cared for the widows. All of these things so countercultural. But the message of Jesus exploded. And it was crazy. If you would have told anyone that was alive in that century that the mighty Roman Empire would not last as long as these ragtag group of people known as the followers of the way, not one person would believe you. Because that's what power was. But by following the way of Jesus, the message grew and the movement grew and it literally changed the world. And so today, why is this relevant for today? I think the same narratives are around. There's this narrative of what power looks like. There's this narrative of what it looks like to be great. For so many of us, like, I just want to be great. I just want power. And there's this, this, this rhetoric that says, hustle, hustle, hustle. Grind, grind, grind. You want to be great? Kill. You got to kill them. You got to just, you got to pick them up, chew them up, and spit them out. That's how you're great. Don't sleep. Rich people don't sleep. They don't rest. They don't come to church. That's an hour. It could be at the stock market. <laughs> power, power, power. But what I want you to understand is that the message of Jesus is still the same. You want to be great, serve. You want to be great, love. You want to be great, don't trample on others, but pour out your life for other people. I'm going to speak to the leaders in this room because there's so many. You want to be a great leader? Love the people that you serve and that serve you. That's the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is always this, what I want us to understand. If culture is going towards this, we always come back towards this. And so what that means, in a culture that is bent on power, we serve. Listen, in a culture that is bent on individualism, right? Do you. Just got to think about you first. Me day. In a culture that is built on individualism, lean into community. Because that's the way of Jesus. In a culture that is all about work, rest. Because that's the way of Jesus. In a culture that is built on greed, give generously because that's the way of Jesus. And I just happen to believe that what God can do, because God calls us to rest, take time off. I think God can do more in six days than you can do in seven. Listen, for those of you that are afraid to give, God will do more with 90% than you could ever do with 100%. He'll take it. He'll stretch it. He'll open doors. He has the cattle on the hill. That's what the old verse says in the Old Testament. The barns are his. There's more where that came from. But we have to believe it. We have to believe that his way is better. It doesn't make sense on the exterior, but the interior is life-giving. The early church was marked by their generosity. It was marked by it, not even just what they gave, literally their lives. Now, here's the thing, because again, if it's life-giving, that means the contents are good. So even if it doesn't sound good, it's good. I'll tell you this, giving is good. Not just your time to give financially is good and it's good for you. There was a long-term study done at the um, Stockholm University. This was their conclusion. I'm showing you one thing. And they said the words worked out perfectly. They said it may seem counterintuitive, but a new study confirms that generous people actually earn more money. Meaning the more generous they are, somehow, some way, it makes its way around. Why? Because Jesus says, seek me first. Seek my kingdom first, and everything else will come to you. He's not going to leave us empty-handed. It's not going to appeal to our senses right away, but it's what's best for us. And so Paul says it was a stumbling block for the Jews who had this picture of power, this picture of greatness. But it was the foolishness of Christ that began to change the world. And I think if we could be a little more foolish today, what might our world look like? What might St. Albert look like? And so in many ways, we're like the Jews but we're also like the Greeks. So again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. 
but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Now, I really need us to understand what the Gentile culture was like, the Greco-Roman world. Um, it was a culture really built on wisdom and this idea of higher knowledge. And so really in, in, in this time and out of this time birthed these great thinkers like Plato, Aristotle, all of these guys. But um, in, in the time, in the time of Jesus, there was this kind of perception in the Greco-Roman world that the human body was not one, but it was split into different parts. And so really there was the body, which is like your material things, right? Material. Then there was your soul, which is immaterial. And really it's not in any way connected to your body. They just kind of have to live together. And so the Greek thought was this. The ultimate liberation for us as humans is to one day escape our bodies. That is what we want to do. We don't want to be in this body. This body is inherently bad. It holds you back. It is no good. You want to be liberated. You want to go be free with your soul. So death was awesome for them. And if you don't know this, like even like things like Buddhism and certain ideals, they're pretty similar to this. It's this Gnostic idea that says intrinsically our bodies are bad. Our souls are cool, but the body is bad. So you need to understand why this is important for Jesus. When Jesus died for the Greek... It's like, well, it's okay, because he's liberated. He's leaving the body. He can now live with the beautiful soul. But when Jesus comes back in the same body, in the resurrected body with the scars, for the Greek, that was utter foolishness. Like, what kind of a movement? What kind of a... The body is bad. It's, not, it's just a thing. The body has no value of no worth. Why would God, why would your God come back to that? And so it was foolish. But here's the thing. When Jesus rose back in the same body, he was teaching us a very, very important lesson. Our bodies, we are marred by sin. That's where death comes from. That's where disease comes from. But at the very end of the day, each and every one of us need to know this. We are split into body and soul. They're two different things, but they are one. They're not disconnected. And your body is intrinsically good because it is created from God. It is made in the image of God. We find that out in Genesis chapter one. You are made in the image of God. And so this was so important because for the early church, they were born into this world that said the body is nothing more than just a vehicle that we live in. There's no real consequences. Nothing happens. It's just a body. Christian comes along. Christianity, the way of Jesus, comes along and says, no, 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 no. We are far more than just a soul with a useless body. We are a body and a soul. We are one, and everything is connected. And there is nothing that happens to your body that does not affect your soul. And Jesus cares about the body. He cares about the body so much. You need to understand this, that when Jesus comes back at the very end of it all, he does not bring us as ghostly ghosts into heaven. The Bible says we will be a resurrected body. Why? Because the body in his original creation is good. So you need to understand every single one of us, our bodies are good. They're a part of us. There's no disconnection. And so the early church, because they had this worldview, and this is really important to understand, your worldview will always dictate your behavior. Whatever you believe is true will creep into real life. And so if you do not believe the body has value, it will creep into your life. Now, we're not quite in the first century, but we're very, very close. The first century is kind of called Gnosticism. We're in a form of that right now. And we have this idea in culture that your body doesn't really mean much. It's disconnected from your soul. Meaning I can hook up with whoever I want and I just won't think about it after. I'll be totally fine. The body is separate. There's no real value to it. It's all about you as an individual. Your body is not reality. What reality is what you think. But Jesus is saying, no, no, it's connected. And so in the early church, and why I'm telling you this and why I think it's relevant today, one of the reasons that the early church exploded is because they were countercultural. It's because they refused to give in to the exterior. And they believed in the heart of the message of Jesus. 
And so there was two things that they did that made them stand out from the people around them. It was number one, their sexual ethic. Their sexual ethic was vastly different than the Romans. And number two, it was their strong belief in the sanctity of life. Life and all life is valuable because it's created in the image of God. All bodies, all, everything is valuable. Now, what I want you to understand is that culture and this idea that the body is just there, there's no real consequences. Just do you, do what feels right. right? Explore. It kind of sounds good sometimes. But the truth is, if the truth of Jesus is true, it will leave us actually more broken than before. And so what I think is that in our culture, we think that we're new and liberated, right? This is new, we're on new ground. But what you don't understand, Solomon says it in the Old Testament, he says there is nothing new under the sun. We work cyclically. Whether we know it or not, the ethics that we have today are so, so similar to the first century. And it's scary, but it's also amazing. Because it was in the first century the church exploded. Because they refused to bow down to culture. And instead they began to create this counterculture. One of the first things, again, was their sexual ethic. Now, maybe you don't know this. I'm here to enlighten you. The very first feminist in the entire world, known world, was Jesus. <laughs> Come on. It wasn't some person that walked in 1903. The very first feminist was Jesus. And you need to understand something. The way in which Jesus treated women, the ethic of the early church was so pro-woman you could not believe it. Now, here's why this is important for today. Because if Jesus was a feminist then, I'm going to do the math. He doesn't change. He's a feminist now. And so what, you need to understand this. Because what the, what the, what the world does is good packaging that actually kills you. And the world says, we are pro-woman. But I happen to believe if you dig into a lot of this stuff, it's actually life-taking, not life-giving. And so you need to understand this. When sexuality is marred, when sexuality is twisted... This is, a, this is throughout human history. Women are the ones that pay the highest price every single time. And so a part of Jesus being a feminist and this part of this idea of equality under king, the kingdom that he has died for everyone is that he wants everyone to experience liberation. That is what he wants. And so men, you need to understand if we know that when sexuality is twisted, women are the ones to suffer. That means it's our job to step up and be like Jesus. Jesus the feminist. So let me explain this in the first century. In the first century, women were a commodity, especially in the Roman Greco world. And literally what that meant was that the man, because of power, right? Power structures, again, if I'm more physical, if I'm bigger, I'm better. And so the man would rule over the woman, even if it was his wife. And so in the Roman Greco world, there was no such idea as morality. Right? It's just the body, whatever feels good. And so a man would have a wife, but he'd also have a concubine. He'd have a slave. He'd have some friends, male and or female. And he would please himself with them however he felt. And in many cases, the wife was there helplessly having to just watch. But in other cases, he said, I don't actually need this wife anymore. Kicks her to the curb. And in that culture, in that society, she doesn't have any value anymore. She's devalued. But no one can see it because they have this low view on the body. Because if you don't think your value or worthy, everything else suffers. Christianity comes along and completely flips the script. I said it completely flips the script. Yeah. Because Jesus has shown us what power is. Power is found in service. When I believe I'm created in the image of God, everything changes. And so Paul, later in this book, this doesn't seem like anything to us, but these are powerful and controversial and crazy words in the first century. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4, he says, The wife does not have authority over her body, but yields it to her husbands. The Romans say, yep, that's true. But Paul continues and smashes them. He says, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but he yields it to his wife. 
This is the very first case in the first century known as mutual submission. You don't just submit to me, we submit to each other because we are submitted to God, because God values us as equals, because we are not any different, male nor female. We are one in Christ Jesus, and we are valuable. And so you need to understand what I'm trying to say. The way of Jesus and the right way of Jesus is always about equality, and it is always for women, and it is always for good. This is a historian, not even a Christian. She writes this. First century says Christianity was unusually appealing because within the Christian subculture, women enjoyed far higher status than did the women in the Greco-Roman world at large. In the first century, one who flocked to the church, it was women. Because they said, wow, that's where equality is. There's life over there. You see, I think today, one of the things that our culture says that liberates because I believe equality is when women are liberated and women are always safest and men are always safest within the confines that God gives us but what our culture says is no 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 and you need to understand this is like I could give you a whole history lesson but one of the reason traditional marriage is is and I mean it's maybe not quite but like early 1900s and the 1900 years before why it was and is the way it is was born out of Christianity and it wasn't because Christians said, this is what is right, this is what is wrong. It is because every single place they went, the cultures around them viewed marriage. And the Christian marriage, and they're like, oh my gosh, I want that. Because that is life-giving. What I have here is not giving me life. And so our culture today, it says, well, no, pleasure is found in spreading your oats. It's found in malt. There's, again, there's no such thing as morality today. What is right for you is what is right and true. And the truth is, the worst thing is for anyone to tell you what is right or wrong. Everyone is free to explore themselves. And it sounds so good and it sounds so liberating, literally like the butterflies. But is it true? Is it true? Is it truly bringing life? Can I share some statistics in America from the hookup culture that we now live in? Every 68 seconds, another American is sexually assaulted. One in six women will be sexually assaulted. Sex trafficking. Four million women worldwide are sex trafficked. Over a million children are being trafficked. 99% of people that are, self, that are sex trafficked are women. 80% of single parents are mothers. You see, when sexuality in a culture is twisted, the women are the ones that always pay the hardest. And so our job is to be like the early church and to present not a, a better moral option where we crush everyone else as immoral, sinners, but to say, hey, the way of Jesus is the best way. And it is for you. It is so, so for you. And it is for your body because your body has value. This is the only worldview that your body actually has value. If you're an atheist today, I'm so pumped that you are here. But if you believe that we are nothing, came from nothing, then your body actually has no value. That's where your worldview leads you. If you ask yourself, how can our culture have such a low view on the body? Well, if you believe that we are just here by chance, a bunch of random cells that mutated over millions of years, you don't actually have that much value. But if you believe that you are handcrafted by God, the God of the universe, the Bible says that he formed our inward, in, in our mother's womb, he formed us, then that gives you value no matter what anyone says or thinks of you. Yeah. Now, you need to understand this. What happens in a sexually free society, a sexually free culture, is there is a big rise in unwanted pregnancies. And so in the first century, a man was free to sleep with his slave but he certainly did not want his slave to have a child. And so in the first century, two practices became extremely, extremely popular. Abortion and what is known as infanticide. And if you don't know what infanticide is, it is to kill the baby after it has been born. And again, all of this comes back to the worldview. Because if body isn't valuable, just a bunch of cells, there's really no moral consequences. It's just an unborn baby. It's just a brand new baby. 
I encourage you, if you guys think I'm crazy, read Peter Singer. He's one of the top um, philosophers of this age. And he even says, because we come from nothing, what makes a person a person is their ability to comprehend. And he says, babies up until the age of three are a moral gray zone, whether it is okay to kill them or not, because they are not yet a person. And Peter Singer is not some dude in his basement. He's a top philosopher at a university. But your worldview leads you places. And so in the first century, abortion and infanticide are on the rise. But once again, this is where Christianity comes alongside them. And again, it does not come to shame. It does not come to condemn, but it comes to support. And what happens in the midst of all of these abortions, in the midst of all of these infanticides, the early church says, whoa, 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 stop. That baby is valuable. It is made in the image of God. We will take care of that baby. We will raise that baby. And I encourage you, if you've never read stories of babies that were raised by early Christians, I encourage you to read them. And it wasn't even just that. Because as the need became greater and greater, it wasn't, I can't, I can't just have two babies. This is where orphanages came from. Orphanages are a Christian institution built to support humans to support people that don't know what to do next. And Christianity once again exploded. And who went there? It was women. Now, I want you to understand this today. And I know abortion is a touchy subject. My heart to understand where I want to go with it is that the church needs to be for people. And it needs to walk alongside people. And it needs to love people regardless and bring them hope and love. And one of the things, again, in the early church, and it's still today, statistics are the same. The majority of women that get abortions today get it because a man pressured them to do it. And it was the same thing in the first century. And so once again, in the first century, it gave women another option. It gave women another option. And so today, when culture is moving in the same direction, what if us as Christians, what if us as believers could be so pro-people? That we could give people an option, not to shame, not to condemn, not to come above a moral high ground, but to say, I am so for you. I love you. Your body, everything inside of you is valuable. You are created in the image of God. So I want to close on this. First Corinthians 1. He says again, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Listen, our very, very best ideas that we have as people do not compare to Jesus. And I can tell you this emphatically, any idea, any culture, real rhetoric, that comes against the message of Jesus, as wise as it may sound, it is complete and utter foolishness. And it will lead not to life, but to death. Now you need to understand something. I talked about this idea of Gnosticism, which is the body is bad, let's just escape. What a lot of people don't know is that Gnosticism grew in, 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 the, in the secular world, but it also grew in the church rapidly. And one of the Gnostic ideas that grew into the church was this idea that one day we're just going to get to heaven. One day Jesus will come and liberate us, get us out of here, get us out of this hell in a handbasket, get me to heaven, sweet Lord Jesus. That's not the Bible. That's Gnosticism. Because what the Bible says, and we see it in the early church, and my heart today is that we'll see it here again now, is not that we escape to go to a faraway kingdom, is that, but is that we bring the kingdom of heaven here and now. That is the gospel. <laughs> the gospel is not to say it's going to get better in heaven. It's to say, I'm going to give you life here today. I have water for you here today, for a culture, for a society, for a city that is dying of thirst. The church comes to bring the living water of Jesus, Jesus who was crucified, Jesus whose message was foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews. It's not always going to make sense. We're not always going to be understood, but water is water whether I want to believe it or not. And so I just wonder for us today, how many of us need to begin to believe the message of Jesus. 
that like it doesn't, doesn't maybe sound what I want it to sound like, but it's true. For those of us today that believe the, whole, the message wholeheartedly, who in your life needs to hear it? Who in your life needs to stop drinking the poison and come to Jesus? And so can we just stand for a second, church? I want to pray for us. I want to give us just an option right now. There's no distinguisher, but just every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're just saying, Harrison, I just, I struggle to believe that the message of Jesus was best, but I want to believe, help my unbelief. If that's you right now, with every head bowed, every eye closed, can you just raise your hand? Say, Harrison, I just want to believe it. I just, I just I struggle to believe it. Because I'm going to pray for you. And for anyone else in the room, same thing. If you, if you just want the courage to share water with people, the life-giving message of Jesus with people, but you've been afraid, can you just raise your hand? Just open your hands up. I'm gonna pray for all of us right now. Jesus, I just pray that we can just bring water to a barren wasteland. God, I pray that we can become so convicted of the message, of its goodness, of its inherent power, Jesus, that we just let it transform our hearts. God, I just pray for any of us that are struggling to believe it, give us faith to believe. And I pray for those of us in our life that are surrounded by thirsty people, that we can just come alongside and stand beside them, that we can bring life. Thank you, God, so much for your goodness and for your mercy and your blessings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. We hope that message encouraged and inspired you. If you want more information, if you made a decision to follow Jesus, head over to kingdomchurch.ca. We'd love to connect with you. Until next time, thank you.